0: One, two. Hello. It's good to have you this morning. Uh, one of the things that we do need to do today, it's one of those bittersweet times. Or oh, do you love that? Did it move for you too? It moved for me as well. Um, this is our last service with um, Joy with us. Joy has gone and got herself married and a husband who's uh, alongside there right now. So maybe if Joy, if you could come, bring Clinton with you as well, if that's okay. They're not embarrassed. And uh, it is amazing, fantastic. We're so delighted that uh, these two have found each other. And uh, we've actually, uh, well personally, I've watched Joy grow up in our church and develop and become this incredible blossoming young woman of God with leadership on her life and She's just, just been a great servant for a house. And, uh, you know, generally, if there's anything's happening, Joy's not been far from it, making it happen. And it brings a great admin gift to everything. And this is her boy. She's done it right, hasn't she? Yeah, that's good. Very good. So everybody approves. So we'd love to just say thank you. You know, there's a right way and a wrong way to leave church. Yeah. Thanks, Kerry. <laughs> there is a right way and a wrong way to leave church. And we really do appreciate those who leave with the blessing of pastors and understand. So they have our blessing. And we're going to uh, take the joy to release them from our house. Got a couple of little gifts here for you. And I believe uh, the uh, music team also have something they want to do as well. And so uh, let's just pray. What I wanted to say to you both is Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds a house, it's a waste of time. Unless the Lord watches over It's a waste of time. And Then the second half of that psalm is all about building family. You think, why do you talk about building houses and building cities and protecting things and building family at the same time? I think the great message of the psalmist is let God be there. Let him really rule and reign over your home. And so I wonder if you just stand with me at this moment. We're going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask Pastor Val if she can just come and support me at this time and any other pastors in the house. Pastor Bob, I think not far away. He's running around somewhere. Um, Pastor Ron, if you're here, if you can come stand with us as well. we're going to pray a blessing. Who believes it makes a difference? I do. I think it really makes a difference that when we send them out with uh, God's blessing. So just come forward a little bit. Come stand about here and that way all the other pastors can get round. We can create so like a, uh, you know, you know, the the power prism around you. Himself. so Father, we do thank you, Lord, for Clinton, for joy, Father. We bless you for them, Lord, the uh, incredible uh, service of being, Lord, to different houses. And Lord, for joy at this stage. Lord, she is a, a sister, Lord, that we will spend eternity with, Lord. And we love her, Lord. We appreciate her. And right now, Lord, we pray your blessing upon this new relationship. Lord, as they go forth, we pray, Lord, you will continue to bless them. Give them increase, Lord. Make them fruitful, dear God. And all that they set their hands to, that Jesus will be glorified, Lord. Not only in what they do, but who they are, Lord. I pray that this will be a family in which Christ is present in a very special way. And through that, Lord, you'd be glorified. And Lord, they'd be fulfilled. Lord, they'll be satisfied with you. In the name of Jesus, Amen. 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 God bless you, Clinton. If you heard, I'll kill you. <laughs> Uh, Not really. Uh, No, 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 I do. And Joy, God bless you, my dear. You know where we are. God bless you. And I think Steve wants to say, don't go away, Steve's going to say something as well.
1: I couldn't let this go without saying something, Joy. And um, I just want you to um, take this little gift on behalf of the worship team. You know, I've been a director of a company for a long time, mm. and um, uh, it's not too long before you realize that a company is nothing more or less than the quality of the people that you have in it. That, that's the absolute truth. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, people will lose sight of that. But, Joy, I've got to tell you, if I had a company full of people like you, oh. man, there'd be nothing you couldn't do. <laughs> it's just, this girl is fantastic, and I know you know that. <laughs> and um, I know God's just going to just um, take what you do and multiply it, you know. Jesus showed me the the loaves and fishes. You know, when I first joined the worship team, and and uh, and what He showed me was that, you know, when we prepare something that we can give to Him, then He takes it and does the miraculous whether He moves it beyond the natural into the, the supernatural. And I just really see you just stepping into areas where you're going to see God actually come and minister and make what you do into something fantastic and productive for His kingdom.
0: Praise the Lord. Very good. Thank you. God bless you. Take your presence with you and have a great life. <laughs> great. Well, just before I get around the word, why don't you just take a couple of minutes to uh, shake a couple of people? I mean, shake their hands, uh, welcome them to church. Say hello. What happened to you, Deborah? Debbie, what happened? Oh <laughs> but one, two. Hi, Gemma. Mel, you've about to have a baby yet? Baby soon? It's good to have you back in church. Thank you for uh, gathering to God today with God's people, uh, particularly on a long weekend. And I understand that uh, there's this thing called Chogum going on that's rearranging all the streets of Perth. And uh, I just think it'd be good to pray The Bible says that when we come together, first of all, that we should pray for those that are in authority above us. And Who thinks it's a tough job to run our world at present? Mm. So, Father, we do thank you, Lord, for world leaders that are gathered in the city right now. Lord, what an incredible responsibility it is to try and, uh, Lord, draw the lines of righteousness, Lord, in the right place. And, Father, we do pray that, Lord, you would help them, Lord, to make decisions, Lord, that will help people Lord, that will help the starving, help the environment, Lord, help each other, Lord, in a spirit, Lord, of harmony, Lord, that would reflect something of your character and nature in the earth, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So at five o'clock today, I think I'm sounding loud to me, but I may not be loud to you, so they will work things out for us. So I think we can run a DVD, thanks, guys. Thank you so much. We've started a series on Esther. So if you weren't with us last week, we uh, just began to look at this uh, interesting little book.
2: A casting of the lot? Or does a call of destiny beckon to each of us? Many have wondered about my little Hadassah, and why a simple Jewish orphan was chosen to stand against the annihilation of her people. And yet the mystery of the girl most known as Esther begins not where one might think, but five hundred years earlier with a single act of disobedience. King Saul of the Israelites had been sent by the prophet Samuel to wipe out an ancient, child-sacrificing enemy. Supervasive was their evil that not even their oxen nor sheep were to be spared. And above all, no survivors left breathing. My lord, I give you Agag, king of the Amalekites. We have also seized for you his livestock, even his queen. me haste across this land of ours how would you accuse me now prophet i carried out your lord's command then why do my ears ring with the lowing of oxen and the bleating of sheep your majesty the amalekite queen She's escaped we have the king what is one woman you fool she is with child The prophet Samuel put a swift end to King Agag. Agag's queen, fleeing with a seed of vengeance growing within her, the Jews never found.
0: just gives you a sense of some of the drama behind this story about Queen Esther in the Bible. And it's, uh, as we looked at last week, it's uh, one of two books in the Bible that bear the name of a woman, Ruth and Esther. So ladies, you get a mention, hallelujah. Oh, you're going to have to help me. I'm on your side today because it gets worse before the day is over. Uh, It's one of three books in the Bible that were not written in Palestine, but outside of Palestine in a different culture. It's also a book that steps over a great deal of known history. Some of the great dramas of the ancient world are played out on Esther's watch. And uh, we also looked at the fact that it's this sense of uh, uh, destiny involved, that the book has this idea of just perhaps you might be in the right place at the right time for the right reason. And that whilst the book was open to a lot of controversy because it wasn't, there's no clear mention of God within the, the text, a lot of scholars thought, does it belong in the Bible? Whilst God's not mentioned, we find that God's hand is hidden but holding on to world life. Isn't that amazing? And so it has this idea of there's the ambiguity of life, there's the circumstances of life going on, But God, somehow, in a way that's inscrutable, that's mysterious to us, that is beyond our figuring out, has been able to get the right person into the right place at the right time. Which means life's not an accident. It means that there's destiny, there's a purpose. That even if you are here today, it's for a reason. It is for a reason. And what we understand about it talks about providence, this idea that God sometimes acts miraculously and he shows off. You know that he's done the miracle. There's also this way that God acts in ways that are not seen to us as we look forward. They're only noticed by us as we look backwards. When little Hadassah, little Esther's being arrested and taken into the king's harem, I don't think she's saying, well, this is how I'm going to save the people of God. She, that's not what she's thinking at all. It's only as we look backwards can we see the hand of God. Last night I was having dinner with Colin and Liz Shaw. You know, people well known to us, members of our church family here, and and you know, Colin just tells this story of how you know he has a brother in, a, in England who, for many years, they've been estranged. To. He came out of an incredible background. Colin, uh, he'll tell you if you let him. <laughs> he can uh, tell you a good story. And he, uh, you know, his father would, was an alcoholic. And he would go down to the hotel and leave Colin out the side of the hotel from 6 o'clock when the bar opened to sometimes 10, 11 o'clock closing. And then his dad would come out drunk and give him what for in the meantime. You know, incredible background. And his, one of his brothers was incredibly damaged by the whole thing. Colin gets saved at a very early you know, relatively early age, he gets sets free of alcoholism. He's a member of the Communist Party, all these sorts of things. But he emigrates to Australia. And, of course, he has it on his heart about his brother, who's antagonistic to religion, grew up in the Catholic Church, a lot of bondage, a lot of, uh, you know, this t- toxic mixture between legalism and alcoholism and violence and abuse. And so he, he doesn't want anything to do with what's happening to Colin. And he's now, I don't know, 20,000 kilometers away from his brother. And, you know, he's lost contact with his brother, doesn't even know now where his brother is. Who can understand that might just weigh a little bit upon your heart if you love your brother and you don't want to go to heaven and not see your brother there. It's on his heart. So he goes back to England. They go back, this is a few years ago, for a bit of a holiday And they're tripping around. He's walking down the old streets and seeing some of the sights. There's a lot of sadness on his heart because uh, it brings back memories. And yet there seems to be, it's 40 years ago. It's moved on. It's not the same. And he's trying to find where his brother's at and all the rest. Anyway, he looks at the sky. And believe it or not, this is England, but apparently there's a big black cloud threatening to rain. I know it sounds strange to understand but there's this huge black cloud and he suddenly realizes he's about 500 meters away from where he parked the car and he starts to bolt for the car because he knows it's going to bucket down cats and dogs very soon. He realizes he's not going to make it. All of a sudden the heavens open, this torrential downpour comes. I know it's England but this torrential downpour comes down and so he takes shelter under the canopy of a little fruit stand. It's a little fruitier, a little grocery shop, and you know and they normally put out the grapes and a couple of crates of fruit out the front, little canopy. So he's standing there underneath the shelter, and all of a sudden another man joins him under the shelter, who he doesn't know. Or that Colin gets to talking to him, and they start going on, and he says, "Oh, I used to live there," and he says, "Oh, you did." This well. and this man, this stranger, says, "Oh, I remember. There used to be a lady down the end of the lane." And she used to, you know, even though it was the war and it was very porno, she used to make scones for the kids every Saturday and all the kids in the neighbourhood would go down there and get one scone, with a little bit of butter on it, maybe a little bit of jam, but it was a really good day and that was just amazing. And Con says, well, that was my mum. It's amazing. So anyway, they contacted all days. But to make a long story short, this man, Bill, knows where his brother is. They go to the old, the aged home where his brother his brother then comes out of dementia for years and years and years and is now beginning to engage in discussions about Jesus and praying. And this man Bill has visited Colin's brother every day of his brother's life until he passed on to be with the Lord. Now, come on, isn't that amazing? But it's a story of providence, isn't it? There's no way that that could happen in the natural. That, you know, the prayers of your heart suddenly means that you're in the right place, in the wrong time, in a rainstorm. You could be thinking, I don't want to get rained on. Who wants to get rained on? But sometimes God's working. This is part of the story of Esther, is that she does end up being in the right place at the wrong time. And she asks this question, just perhaps, who knows, my life's not an accident. Just perhaps I'm here today hearing this, for the purposes of destiny maybe just maybe you're here today and everything that's happened to you is for a reason for destiny's sake for the kingdom's sake for the king's sake for glory's sake that it's not an accident and here's this book where we don't hear anything about dreams and revelations or prophecies or any of the direct communication of god but there's a story about Esther. Now I'm going to read to you from Esther chapter 1. The king's banquet. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. It's a big dude. Here's one powerful guy from Ethiopia to India. Now Xerxes is actually the son of Darius. And Xerxes at one stage tried to uh, remove... Darius tried to conquer Greece about 120 years before it failed in that particular process. And if you ever watched the movie or heard about the Spartans and the 300 that stopped the thousands and thousands, that goes back to there. So Darius got his butt kicked and the son's unhappy about that. So he wants to go now and actually. Change that whole deal and bring Greece under submission. So you've got two mighty empires rubbing shoulders with each other the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire rubbing shoulders with each other on the western and eastern bound routes. And so Xerxes plans to go to war. He tried to cross the Hellespont, which is a place where the fingers of Greece touch Turkey. It's a short little place. And he went to the uh, Hellespont, this little uh, we call it the Dardanelles, where Gallipoli happened for the Anzacs and stuff like that. This is this particular area. And uh, just to give you a bit of an idea into the nature and the mindset of Xerxes, or Xerxes if you want to say it, probably Xerxes is more correct to say it that way. Xerxes, just to give you a bit of an idea. When they went to the Hellespont, he ordered for his uh, builders to construct a bridge, a land bridge from Basically, Asia Minor crossed into Europe. It was going to be a big bridge, but he had thousands and thousands of soldiers. Anyway, the storm came and wrecked the bridge. So, his response to that was he ordered that every builder would be beheaded. So, they beheaded 600 builders there. Then, he ordered a soldier to walk into the Hellespont with a whip and to give the Hellespont a, a thousand lashes, whipping the water. Whoosh, whoosh. And he had the whole of his army stand and watch this. And they were commanded to yell abuse at the Hellespont. <laughs> Could you imagine that scene? Thousands and thousands of soldiers you horrible water, you terrible sea, down with you. We curse you, Hellespont!" Why, well, they're lashing the water. That gives you a bit of an insight into this man, Xerxes. I mean, he is a maglo maniac. I mean, he thinks he's God. And they lived as gods. They could do anything they want. They could just, as a whim, what came out of their mouth could be done straight away. So that's a bit of the thing. So here we have this is the fella, Xerxes, and he's got this. So in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet to all his nobles and officials, invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princesses and the nobles of the provinces. And they celebrate a 180 days. That's a big party. A tremendous display of opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and the splendor of his majesty. This is one big party. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least from the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in the marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. This was pretty spectacular. Go wow. Fantastic. Say it backwards. Very good. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all the palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for all the women in the royal palace of Xerxes. Now, this actually parallels. Another ancient writing. The, the very first historian, I call him the Herodotus, he's known as the father of history. The word history actually comes from the Greek word inquiry, but we've made it into a record. But he was inquiring into the Greek and the Persian wars. So we have the first substantial historical document from the ancient world, Herodotus, speaking about exactly the same event. Exactly the same event. What Herodotus says is that Xerxes wants to actually go to war. He wants to go back and he wants to make Greece yield to the power of the Persian Empire and to revenge his father. So he's pulled in all the officials and all the rulers, all the politicians, all the opinion makers to give him a really big party because at the end of the day he wants to go to war. Herodotus says that the motivation for this particular banquet that we read here In Esther chapter 1, the Bible doesn't give us the motivation, but Herodotus does. He wants to go to war. He's trying to unify the great breadth and length length of his kingdom into an army that will go to war and win. And so he's got this incredible display of wealth. The reason why he's doing that, Herodotus tells us, is that he's saying to the captains and the, the... If you come to war with me, whoever does the best, you're going to get some of this wealth. You can choose from my treasury. You can have what you want. So it's, this is what's going on. They're drinking an incredible amount of alcohol. Uh, I'll finish reading first. Queen Vashti was disposed on the seventh day of the feast when King Xerxes was high in spirit. <laughs> Don't know how that happened. He was <laughs> Because of the wine... He told his seven eunuchs who attended him, Menuhem, Bitha, Habona, Bitha, Agatha, Zitha, and Carcass, that's a good name, Carcass, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty for she was a very beautiful woman. And when they conveyed the king's order to the Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors, who knew all the Persian laws and the customs, for he always asked their advice. Their names were Garshena, Shema, Adamatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marsena, and Meh- Memucan, seven nobles of Persia and Media. And they met with the king regularly and they held the highest positions in the empire. What must be done with Queen Vashti? the king demanded. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders, properly sent through his eunuchs? Memucan answered the king and said, and his nobles, Queen Vasti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen through your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vasti has refused to appear before the king. Before the day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and they will start treating their husbands in the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and the Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she when this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive the proper respect from their wives.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the king and his nobles through them thought this made good sense, so they followed Memekens council, they sent letters to all the parts of the empire to provide each his own script and language Proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should do whatever he pleases. Oh, Lord. Now, when they do the Feast of Purim and Juris Circles, uh, you're allowed to boo into hits. So, girls, that's probably a very good place to boo into hits. <laughs> it's a very different world in which we are. Now, back to what Herodotus says. It says now, they're doing lots of drinking and lots of feasting. Now, in the ancient world, the Persians had a different view of um, intoxica- intoxication than what probably Westerners do. We've, we've lost the link. People don't understand, but drugs are the number one way to contact the spirit world. People don't understand that. Taking drugs will not only hurt your body physically and damage you, but the number one way people, as long as man's been on the earth, has have used to contact the spirit world has been through the use of intoxicating hallucinogenic drugs. The word for black magic in the Bible is the word drug, pharmaceutica. There's always been this connection. So in the ancient world, they would realize that if you got really off your face, that you put yourself into a a different spiritual realm than when you are sober. Is this helping anybody here? When you're off your face, you are placing yourself into a different spiritual territory than when you are actually in your right mind. And so it's very dangerous. People do things when they're intoxicated or under the influence of a drug that they would never do when they're sober. Is that just me? (laughs) You wouldn't believe some of the things I've done when I've drunk. Maybe you would, but I don't do that stuff when I'm sober. I haven't done it for many years either, by the way. So it's an important understanding. So in the Persians, what they would do is they would actually have this idea that in order before you make any decision of the empire or kingdom, whatever, you actually needed to get blind drunk. They thought what would happen is if you make a decision... While you are sober, then you get blind drunk. And when you're blind drunk, if you still think it's a good idea, then the gods have spoken. That's what they thought. Or if you made a decision when you were blind drunk and you still thought it was a good idea when you were sober, then they would still think the gods have spoken. And you might ask, what's the difference between the politics now and the politics back then? But we won't go there. (laughs) But that's what they thought. So there's, there's actually a ceremonial aspect to what's going on here. They want to go to war. They want things to happen. Xerxes wants to raise a, uh, an army. They say that his dad raised an army of about a million people, the biggest army that ever ever walked the earth. And, you know, that whole thing about the 300 Spartans that stopped the way and saved the nation. Well, he wants, you know, if dad can do a million, he's looking to grow something quite big here. He's brought in all the stakeholders. He's trying to produce unity. He's trying to bring synergy. And in the middle of that, Queen Vashti says, I'm not coming to the party. Who can see there's a problem? If he can't run his household, how can he ever run a kingdom? Now, that's, I could go a long way with that because the Bible continues to say that that's actually something that even comes down to church leadership later on. If you can't run your home, you can never run the kingdom. So it's a big principle. But for um, Xerxes, it's a problem of the biggest nature. I mean, how much booze has he spent? How many kegs has he opened? How many pigs have been slaughtered? How much gold has he rolled out? And the whole thing, this whole plan... To conquer empires can be scuttled because the queen won't come. And the men are nervous about that. You know, and we don't want to get into sexual politics right now because that's something which didn't exist 3,000 years ago. It might exist today, but in those days it was a very sexist society. In those days it was a very tough society to be a woman. And so here we had this deal going on And Vashti says she won't come. Now Herodotus says that she was against the war. So maybe she's actually developing some degree of, um, you know, she's resisting the political side of this. Some of the Jewish rabbis, they actually read the text as this, that when Xerxes says for Queen Vashti to come wearing her crown, the implication is he's requesting his wife to come only wearing her crown so if that's the case we'd actually think that she's a good lady that she's done the right thing that she stood up for purity she's stood up for that which is honorable and respectful in any society that would be an incredibly demeaning shameful thing for have to be doing and you know who wants to get you know stand up in front of a bunch of gawking guys start naked so you know there are a couple of ideas there So here we have this situation where Esther now is positioned in this kingdom. Vashti's been disposed. Memucan, who made the suggestion, generally the uh, new queens were always selected from families of the seven nobles. So there may be he had his own agenda. If we can get rid of Vashti, then the next likely person to be voted queen could be my daughter, you see. So... There was all these machinations going on, all these thoughts with the court and stuff. So Queen Esther comes uh, into the thing. Now, with um, Esther, I don't like the movie because they portray Esther as this pure, perfect, incredible heroine. And when I came to Esther and I grew up with the story of Esther, That's how I tended to see Esther, as the girl that was incredibly, you know, the good girl. Never did anything wrong, whatever. But as I've wrestled with the text, I think Esther is a little bit more like us, caught between two cultures. She's the only person in the book that has two names, a Jewish name, Hadassah, and a Greek name, uh, sorry, her Persian name, Esther it seems that as you read the story that uh she's not making it clear to people that she's a person who serves the one true god she seems to be a secret disciple i don't know about you but i relate more to that sometimes i've had difficulties stepping out of the crowd and coming out and saying i'm a passionate follower of jesus christ that you know i've known what it is to have a foot in the world not wanting to be sinful not wanting to be Given over to that, but not also being clear as to where I stand, whereas she seems to be straddling both these worlds she 's a believer in Jehovah at one level, but she doesn 't seem to be overly standing up i mean she 's not like Daniel, you remember Daniel? you remember daniel 's three friends, Abshak, meshach, and the shak down the end of the road <laughs> you know these the other stories that we have of the same period of time are incredibly different these are stories of young men who have stood up says we will not bow when the trumpet's blown and everybody's got to bow the knee to the statue we will not eat those dainties those all the meat and the pork and all the rotten food we will go on vegetables we will not bow Daniel says that I will not change if you throw me to the lions and so we have this contrast of these three young men and Daniel, who in a different culture are showing how you stand up, how you be counted, how you be different, and how you trust God for the miraculous and be supernaturally delivered, or sometimes if God chooses not to, if God saves or not. But that's not Esther. Esther's more ambiguous. Esther is a girl who hasn't really made a stand in an overt way. I mean, all said and done. Whilst the Bible says that she was captured, she was seized and taken away to join the harem, she's actually been prepared. I mean, she was a major babe. That's why she was, uh, that was, why she was taken and placed into the harem. She's prepared for 12 months to have a one-night stand, potentially, with a Gentile king. And with the Feast of Purim, they would all go boo, hiss and we'd rattle our noise rattles and stuff. That's not what you'd say is meant to be the way God does things. God takes the perfect, the pure, places his gifting anointing, them. they never make mistakes. That's the way we tend to run the narrative, isn't it? But this is not what's happening in her case. She didn't say when she's taken to the harem, hey, I'm a Jewish girl. I'm a servant of the one true God. I cannot marry a Gentile. Exactly the same moment that you're reading this story, if we were to flip over into Nehemiah and into Ezra, the exact same moment, 70, back in Jerusalem, they are actually going through a time of purification where they're actually breaking down into marriage. It's actually a real issue. Back in the pure land of Israel, you know, you've got Ezra and Nehemiah going around pulling the hair out of people's heads, saying, "You horrible person! How come you have gone into mixture and you now have intermarried with those in the, in you know, in the um, people around you and stuff?" But we go back to the palace, and here's Esther in the harem getting ready for a one-night stand with a Gentile king. It doesn't sit quite right with us, does it? It doesn't seem to be the way God does seem. And yet God, somehow in his amazing grace and majesty, can take this difficult situation and says, I can still use that for my glory and my purposes. Hallelujah. I can take that with my grace and I can maneuver things around where God can still have his way. And so that gives me hope because I think in many ways we are still living in ancient Persia. You know, we we think we're so smart because we've got lights and LCDs and all these sorts of things. But back in those days, a man was was measured on the basis of his power and his prestige and his position. And a woman was measured on how she looked, her dress size, and how attractive she was. Aren't you glad we haven't moved on after all that? Sad, isn't it? Nothing has changed. And that's sad. We still have people that love God today who still think that it's all about if I'm a man, I need to have the best bank account, the best house, the best business, the best, the best, the best, the best, and we've made it all about those Tories, and that was wrong then and it's wrong now. And so many girls today suffer because they're not an Esther. They're not the right shape. They don't fit into the world's mold. And they go through incredible... God is not interested in that. He wants our heart. He wants our relationship. He wants to live with us. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't matter what your shoe size is in heaven, does it? It doesn't matter what your head size is. None of that matters in heaven. God wants to use everybody and you are uniquely and wonderfully made in Him. So some of us just need to say, God, let me do what Esther did. There came a time when I understood that despite the fact I was caught between two cultures, I was part Jewish, and I was part Persian, and I probably made some compromises because the truth is, being in the palace was probably pretty nice. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't have to worry about your food in the palace, would you? you wouldn't have to worry about your guards. You wouldn't have to worry about your safety. You just got to pretend that you're not a believer. And she was caught between those things, but there came a moment in her life, where there came a time when she had to make a stand, I will stand here or I will stand here. And I can guarantee you, this is a word of prophecy if you like, that as we get towards the end of this age, every person who calls Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is going to have to make a decision as to where they stand. I'm either going to stand here with the world and comfortable Christianity and get things that will scratch my ears and tell me how to be a wealthy, happy person and all that, or I'm going to stand here and be marked as a disciple for Jesus Christ, But he is my Lord. We haven't moved much in two and a half thousand years, have we? Apparently, if you go to the northeast of Japan, my Japanese is absolutely hopeless, unless it's Mitsubishi or Toyota, Uh, those I can say. But anything else, I don't know. But apparently where that terrible tsunami hit on the 11th of March this year, where about 12,000 people died in that tsunami, an incredible tragedy, it's called Aniroshi, something like that. If you go to that area of the country, as you walk up the mountains there, every once in a while you'll come and there will be a stone marker And some of those stone markers are actually 10 feet tall. They're pretty big suckers, you know. And one of the the stone markers there, right above the village that caught the front of this tsunami, actually reads this. It says this, Beware of tsunamis. Do not build below this mark. That stone has been there for 600 years. There's another stone a little bit further up. It's been there also for 600, maybe a 1,000 years. And it says this. Do not build below the mark. Life is more precious than valuables and possessions. Incredible, isn't it? There's another marker that says happiness is living above the waterline. Now... Come on, guys, there's a warning on the hills. Apparently there are thousands of these stones all through northeastern Japan. But what's happened over the years is that people thought, oh, we haven't seen a tsunami for a while. I'm not even certain whether tsunamis are real. And now that we've got technology and the land's cheap down there and we all want to be by the beach, don't we? Yeah. And people have ignored the warning. And so when the big tsunami came in, a 12 tragedy, absolute tragedy, there'd be a lot of people be saying, why didn't you listen to the warning? If you'd listened to the warning, your life would have been saved. Friends, the Bible is an incredible message about grace and hope, as we heard Kevin share this morning, but also contains a warning contains a warning that if we don't align ourselves with God's plan and God's purposes on the earth, a tsunami is coming. A wave of God's judgment is coming upon the earth, and unless we align ourselves with God, we could find out that we could lose our life. We may go for values and possessions, but if we build in the wrong place, we could risk it all. There's a warning. In 14 years before the Titanic, sank that incredible boat. A man by the name of um, Robertson wrote a book called The Titan, 14 years before the Titanic. The name of the book was called Futility. And incredibly, it talks about a boat called the Titan and he describes this boat, before the Titanic was ever built, it's almost exactly the same size carries exactly the same number of passengers, that it exactly also had the problem that it didn't build enough lifeboats because it thought it was invincible and unsinkable. And in the book, it actually says that the Titan hit an iceberg at 25 knots on an April evening. The Titanic sank on an April evening, hitting an iceberg. You read the similarities between the two stories and you just go, scary, scary. And if someone had just picked up the book earlier and allowed something to come in of sense, it might have saved a life. might have saved your life. Friends, many times in church life these days, we say things that will build you and inspire you. But today, with the permission of the Holy Spirit, can I save your life? Can I save your life? Can I give you a warning that if you don't live according to what the Bible says and that means coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we acknowledge him as Lord, and you let him rule over your life because everybody has a relationship with Jesus, even the devil has a relationship with Jesus. I oh, know that might sorry, the devil has it's not a very good relationship, by the way but he has a relationship. It's not having a relationship only. I mean, we, we talk that, so, but it's actually having a relationship where he's king, he's God, he's glory. So can I ask you not to have one night with the king, but to have a lifetime with the king, to step out of the culture of Australia that's uh, focused on my getting and step into the kingdom of God that's focused on my giving and to come out and be counted for God. Let me give you the warning because one day, just perhaps for this time I've been called to make a decision. Dear Father, I just pray that you would help us to just adjust those things in our heart, that Lord, we would be like Esther, Lord, understanding that there's the trap of culture. Lord, there's those temptations to be in the palace where it's easy, where the bed linen is soft, where the Fans are good, there's hot and cold running water that everything's laid on, Lord. And there's also the people of God that need deliverance. And maybe just for such a time as this, Lord, you've called us to make a difference. Lord, as we look at the earth today and we see, Lord, the multitude of those starving, Lord, instead of accusing you, Lord, of what are you doing about it, Lord, you're going to ask us what did we do about it. Lord, when we see domestic violence and abuse and alcoholism, Lord, and loneliness and depression, Lord, and self-harm, and Lord, all the stuff that hurts our community, Lord, you've caught us to be a part of that solution. And Lord, we don't want to ever underestimate, Lord, the power of what a small group of committed people can do. Because, Lord, you've changed everything that way. Just one person in the right place, can actually make the difference. In Jesus' name, Lord, let us understand that, Lord, together with you, Lord, we make up a majority. You and me, dear God, together we are a majority. Thank you, Jesus. They're saying that either today or tomorrow, the 7th being person on the face of the globe is going to be born. It's, it's really quite mind-blowing, isn't it? seven billionth person will get born in the next 24-hour period. And as we look at the world, guys, God has everything under control. Esther tells us that he's got everything under control and he's going to bring about his plan and purposes. So can we stand together and believe God that he's going to do awesome things in the earth and say we will do it together and we will do our bit. Amen. Let's have the band up and uh, we will uh, close with a song. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you're not invited to come in and uh, change you from the inside out, we'd love to give you that opportunity this morning. There is a warning. The warning is one day a tsunami is coming. It's a wave of God's judgment. He's going to wipe away sin and selfishness. Uh, So you can choose to be on the high ground. You can take that high ground in God today. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, The saints are praying. Can you just slip your hand up in the air right now and I'll see that and pray with you. We invite you to join God's family forever. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. I think there's a young lady over there. Thank you, Sarah. That's uh, AJ's girlfriend. Mother of his baby. Bless you. Fantastic. Let's just pray together. Dear Father, We thank you that Jesus saves, that you do rescue us. You rescue us from our past. You rescue us from the pain of our present. And you rescue us, Lord, from a lost future, a wasted future. So, Lord, I invite you into my life right now. I ask for you to wash away all my mess. Come and change me, make me brand new. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I come alive in you and I make you the Lord of my life in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's give Sarah a hand. That's fantastic.